Welcome back, Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy Aiken, our guest. It's an open forum, but of the internet variety. It's an internet open forum. We get lots and lots of questions here. And some days we like to take out all those internet questions and let Jimmy have a crack at them. And I got a long, long list of them. Don't worry, we're not going to run out of questions. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Jimmy's not going to run out of answers. So we got a good hour uh, coming up ahead of us. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for coming back for another hour. My pleasure, Cyril Kellett. Uh, and I'll, I'll just remind folks again tonight while we're uh, pre-recording, because uh, Jimmy's got a debate tonight, and he's heading over there to probably over there already as we're speaking, getting ready to debate Bart Ehrman, 7 p.m. Pacific time tonight. Oh, I, uh, I have seen, you know, in prepping for this debate, I've watched Bart's previous debates on the same subject, and and in one recent one, he begins his opening statement by asking the audience how many of them are there to see him creamed. Oh, <laughs> what a funny thing to do. And yeah, he'd be a funny guy. And if he if he does that tonight, I'm going to have to decide on the spot whether I'm going to raise my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you can find, but again, you can join. Uh, people are going to be joining all around the world. Just go to YouTube.com and uh, put in the words Catholic Answers. Search there on YouTube and you'll come to the Catholic Answers page and you can watch the debate. Um, let's see. Where are we going now? I believe we're going to David. Yep. Uh, David asks this, Jimmy. How is it remotely right that annulment due to can canonical form means that a person who was baptized Catholic but left the church in their teens and was married in a Protestant church isn't really considered married by the Catholic Church, and they could get it annulled if they came back? How does this actually work, and what am I misunderstanding? Because I don't see how that's remotely justified. Well, this is kind of a thorny issue in uh, in canon law. The principle that um, that if you're a Catholic, you either need to observe the Catholic form of marriage or get a dispensation under ordinary circumstances is one that is itself rational. You know, just like the secular state regulates the marriages of its citizens so that you don't have problems where, you know, one person is saying, well, we got married and the other is saying, no, we didn't. I don't owe you anything. Well, yeah. That's why we keep records of who gets married to who. And there are regulations to the process to make sure it's done in a, in a, in a proper way and so forth. And if it's legitimate for the secular state to do that in civil law, it's certainly legitimate for, since marriage is a sacrament, for the church to do the same thing, to regulate the marriages of its citizens, its members, uh, in order to keep things functioning the way they should and to, you know, have things like marriage preparation so that, mm -hmm. you know, there's people understand the commitment they're getting into and they're undertaking it freely and, you know, they're not and that they're getting married validly and saying, OK, if you're a Catholic, you need to um, you need to go through this process. Uh, that's all legitimate in principle. The problem comes with um, with people who are no longer Catholic and under the 1983 Code of Canon Law, originally, there was an there was a provision that um, that said, okay, uh, if someone has defected from the church by a formal act, then they don't need to observe canonical form. And so, if someone's like a formal ex-Catholic, mm -hmm. then they they could go ahead and get married outside the church. Um, and the one of the problems with that was, and I think that's a legitimate thing in principle, but one of the problems was the code didn't define what constituted a formal act. 
And eventually, in the reign of Pope Benedict, that got clarified, and a ruling came down that said, basically, in a formal act, you you, you got to like involve the bishop, and write the bishop, and 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 say I'm no longer a Catholic, and things like that. And it was a, there was a formal effectively a formal process that was instituted as opposed to just, you know, say joining another church. Because there were these ambiguous situations where someone would like join a Methodist church in order to please their spouse, but they'd still regard themselves as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so um yeah, I'm a Catholic, but I go to this Methodist church because of my wife. And that's a kind of confused situation. Yeah. Where you're not attending the Catholic Church, but you still regard your anyway, it was a, that's kind of messy. And so they tried to clarify it by making this much more formal way of of, of triggering this clause. But then again, like within a couple of years in the reign of Pope Benedict, um, there was a, a contrary ruling that came down because they decided this creates a perverse incentive for people to leave the church who might not otherwise leave the church. And this was particularly an issue in countries like Germany, where um, where your your taxes are affected based on what church you affiliate with. And so a contrary ruling came down that eliminated the exception. And so the way the new law was written, um, you if you had ever been a Catholic, even if you were just baptized a Catholic and your parents never raised you in the faith, the way the law is currently written, you've either got to get... Uh, you've either got to get married in the Catholic Church, even though you've never considered yourself Catholic, or you have to get a dispensation, even though you've never considered yourself Catholic. Um, and that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I think eventually uh, this fact will impress itself on on folks in Rome, and I suspect this is going to be further clarified because it it does not seem to make a lot of sense to say this baby was was baptized Catholic, but his parents never raised him Catholic. He may not even know he's he was baptized Catholic, and yet he, in order to contract a marriage validly, he's got to get married in the Catholic Church, and and it it doesn't make a lot of sense. And there is some discussion in the canon law community about has has the concept of canonical form for marriage outlived its usefulness? Um, do we still need to have this today, or should canonical form be eliminated altogether? Um, and thus people who didn't obey canonical form would not get a free pass, so to speak, for an annulment. Mm-hmm. And there's a discussion about that. There are different points of view and different arguments used, but it is a subject that's under active discussion. David, thank you for that uh, fascinating question. And uh, it's, I mean, there, law is is going to constantly need to be updated, I suppose, to get with the times and, and to fit with the society. That's fascinating to hear that whole mm-hmm. kind of twisted yeah, tale. Because originally the, it was the church that kept track of marriages uh, the, and the state wasn't even doing it. Um, they had this problem of secret marriages, where because there was no public ceremony that the state required, a couple could decide to just privately marry each other with no witnesses and no minister. And you can see the kind of problems this would lead to, yeah. because you get this young couple, they're they're really 
they're really, really interested in each other, they're, and they just one night they are tempted and decide, let's get married on the spot now. in the <laughs> now, right this moment in the privacy of our own bedroom. And it's like in uh, in the Steve Martin movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, where he is kissing his love interest for the movie, and we hear his voiceover narration, and he says, my plan was to maneuver her over to the bed, marry her, and start the whoopee machine. <laughs> and yeah. and the people would literally do that yeah. in the right. old ages with these, in, with these clandestine marriages. And it would then cause huge problems because buyer's remorse. Yeah. And so the next morning, it's like, yeah, I don't know that we really get married there. And you'd have guys <laughs> saying, oh, no, I didn't marry her. Not at all. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, it, it, yep. It's a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> so that's the, why the laws, the church started these laws. Start the whoopee machine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll take mm -hmm. a quick break. Right back with more Internet Open Forum. Jimmy Aiken, our guest. Lots and lots of questions from the Internet to come. Miss a show? Make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast, available online at catholic.com. The Aquinas Writing Advantage program is part of Homeschool Connections' set of online courses for your Catholic homeschool. Homeschool Connections' website is homeschoolconnections.com. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects homebuyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. This is Conversations with Consequences, where we delve deeper into issues affecting our church, our country, and our core, the family. As Catholics, we need to be informed, aware, and able to talk through some of the tough topics that we're facing in our culture and in our world. Conversations with Consequences gives us the tools to do so. It's not enough to pray. We have to be a light for the world. Conversations with Consequences, this Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Catholic Answers Live, Internet Open Forum. Jimmy Aiken here with us, taking questions from the Internet. And Jack used the Internet to ask this. What would you say to a Protestant who doesn't see the need to go to church on Sunday? Well, um, I'd point to a few things. Uh, I, in fact, I'd point to several Bible passages, since that's something that Protestants regard as authoritative. One of the passages I'd point to is found in Hebrews chapter 10. If you look at verses 23 and 25 in Hebrews 10, the author is saying, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, meaning God or Jesus, is faithful. So we need to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And how do we do that? Well, in verse 25, he says we need to do that not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So he, the author of Hebrews, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying we should not neglect meeting together as Christians. We need to meet together. Mm -hmm. That may be the habit of some. They, they want to sleep in and not go to church. Um, but we need to do that. And this is the Holy Spirit telling us this through the author of Hebrews. We need to meet each other. And one of the reasons 
that we need to meet as Christians is to encourage one another. And that's something which is right here in Hebrews 10, but then it's also amplified again by the inspiring Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But particularly in 1 Corinthians 12, St. Paul is talking about the range of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individual Christians. So we all have gifts from the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of these gifts is to mutually build up the body of Christ. And so we individually have gifts that we need to use to help other Christians. And other Christians have gifts that they need to use to help us. So if we're not going to church, if we're not involving ourselves in the Christian community, then we are both denying others the benefits that God wants them to receive through the gifts he gave us, that's why he gave us the gifts, and we're denying ourselves the benefit that would come from the gifts that God gave others to share with us. So we're being selfish, and we're also hurting ourselves. We're being selfish in that we're not sharing our gifts with others, and we're hurting ourselves in that we're not receiving the benefit from their gifts. So if we're going to be involved as Christians, and if we're going to meet together, like the Bible is discussing, we need some commonly agreed upon time to do that. And from the apostolic age, that has been Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day of the week on which Jesus was raised. And so we not only meet together, meet each other on that day, we also come together to worship Jesus on that day. And this is something that Paul refers to a bit later on in 1 Corinthians. If you look in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, He's talking about taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem from the Church of Corinth, and he says, every first day of the week, you guys should lay aside stuff for this collection so that when I come, we won't have to make collections. And that indicates that the church in Corinth, like other churches, were meeting on the first day of the week, and so it would make sense to set aside something on that day of the week when you're meeting with the other Christians, so you got all the money in one place, so you don't have to scramble. You do it every every first day of the week when you meet together, so that when Paul comes and meets you on a first day of the week, you don't got to pull it all together at the last minute. And um, it, thus, in by the time the book of Revelation was written, the first day of the week was already being referred to as the Lord's Day because John says that he saw the vision of Revelation on the Lord's Day, meaning the day the Lord was raised from the dead. Uh, so there's a firm biblical basis for going to church on Sunday, and a Protestant ought to respect that. Jack, thanks for the question. Internet Open Forum, this one comes from Maria. Is it wrong to address the angel Gabriel as archangel? I have learned from Wikipedia that he is an archangel. Oh, boy. Second in, second in command. Uh <laughs> Is it a Catholic teaching to acknowledge Gabriel as archangel? What's the difference between the two? So um, this is a matter of theology rather than church teaching. Uh, the as based on different Bible passages down through the uh, centuries, different Catholic authors have speculated about how about what the different types of angels are and how they relate to each other, and who is higher ranking than who else, and so forth. Um, but as John Paul II pointed out, this is all speculation. The Church has, has not said 
okay, this kind of angel is definitely higher than this kind of angel, and there's exactly these choirs of angels and not others. It's really all theological speculation. And so um, as a result, you know, we can use the data we have in the Bible, and the Bible indicates that Gabriel is an angel, but, I mean, it, he's called an angel in Luke, for example, but um, it doesn't give us really a lot more information about that. Now, some authors have talked about angels and archangels as if they're two fundamentally different things, but I don't find that persuasive, because in Greek, all archangel means is high-ranking angels. Mm -hmm. So in, in an army, you know, a general is higher ranked than a private, but that doesn't mean generals and privates are not both human beings. Right. And right. so I would say, well, an, an archangel is just a high-ranking angel. Now, we have biblical evidence that Michael is an archangel. Um, the, he, the term archangel is used in connection with Michael, but it's not used in connection with Gabriel. So we don't have an explicit statement in Scripture that Gabriel's an archangel. But if you're the one who gets to go announce the birth of the Messiah to his virgin mother, I would think you probably are pretty highly ranked. So even though Gabriel is not called an archangel, the tasks that we see him doing, and the fact he's one of only a handful of angels whose names we know, suggests he is a very prominent high-ranking angel. So I, would have, I wouldn't have a problem calling him an archangel. He's also listed as an archangel in the church's liturgy. If you look on the liturgical calendar, um, he's listed alongside Michael on uh, one of the one of the uh, commemorations in the liturgical year, and they're both listed as archangels. And so it's become traditional, including in the liturgy, to refer to him as an archangel. That's not a church teaching, but it is a common practice, and I think it has a good basis in Scripture. On the other hand, archangel second in command, well, Michael does seem to maybe be more prominent than Gabriel, because he's the one that binds the devil and he's the one associated with the second coming in a more prominent way than Gabriel. So I would say Gabriel probably ranks lower than Michael, but as far as specifically Archangel second in command, I think that's underdetermined by the data, if I can put it that way. I can't yeah. say it's false, but also don't bet the farm on it. And it's, you know, with Wikipedia in general, don't bet the farm on what you read on Wikipedia. Maria, thanks uh, very, very much. Appreciate the question. It's Internet Open Forum. Jimmy Aiken, our guest. Uh, let's see. Ed says this. Since the LXX... Septuagint. Oh, the Septuagint. <laughs> I gotcha. Since the Septuagint was the basis for our current Bible, why weren't all of the Septuagint's books included in the Bible? Um, the answer is because there are different editions of the Septuagint. In the first centuries BC and AD, the Bible was not a single book. It was a library. Originally, it was a library of scrolls. And what particular scroll, and only a super rich person or a wealthy church could afford a complete collection. Um, because books were so expensive. I mean, a single copy of the Gospel of Matthew would have cost something like $2,000. So if you think about how thin Matthew is compared to the thickness of a modern Bible, 
it would have cost serious, serious money to have the entire collection of scrolls, and very few people would have. And so what the result was, was when people got around to putting the books of the Bible in a single volume, like Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, and so forth, um, they would use the Septuagint for the um, for the Greek Old Testament, but there would be slightly different collections that you would find. And some some editions of the Septuagint Old Testament would have a few additional books, and some would have a few less books. Now, they, um, they typically would include the Deuterocanonicals that Catholics recognize, but frequently they would also include some additional books like 3rd and 4th Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Esdras, the Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, and even a few others, like the Shepherd of Hermas, if I recall correctly in one of them. Um, actually, that should, that's a New Testament writing, so we shouldn't count that towards the Septuagint. But um, the fact is there were different editions of the Septuagint that included slightly different books, and the Holy Spirit led the Church to recognize one of these traditions um, that included the Deuterocanonicals, but did not include what was found in some other editions of the Septuagint. All righty. Uh, thanks very much for that one. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, this one comes from uh, Bao. Um, oh, okay. So it's two questions. Uh, question one, when are Catholics required to give their full assent to the teachings of the Church? I heard an apologist mention that we do not have to follow Pope Francis's teaching on the death penalty since he was making a prudential judgment. Uh, you want the whole thing? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that first. Okay. So um, the when a Catholic must give full definitive assent. It, now you're supposed to give assent even when it's not full, even when full and definitive assent is not required. But full definitive assent is required when a pope or council or the bishops scattered throughout the world teach on a matter infallibly. If they haven't taught on a matter infallibly, then ordinarily we are still to give religious assent to their teaching, but there, the Church recognizes there can be situations where a person may not do that, but that has to be the exception rather than the rule for a non-infallible teaching, because the Holy Spirit is still guiding the Church even in non-infallible teachings. When it comes to uh, recent teaching regarding the death penalty, there is a debate about the degree to which it's doctrinal versus prudential, and also whether it's doctrinal or prudential. Um, the it's it's very it's been posed very tentatively and has not been addressed infallibly. So it's a not at, at most it's a rather tentative, non-infallible teaching that uh, hypothetically someone could disagree with, or if if it's just a prudential judgment, again, one could hypothetically disagree with it. But um, the basic answer to the question is when something is taught infallibly, that's when full and definitive assent is required. And if you'd like to learn more about that, I'd suggest getting a copy of my book, Teaching with Authority, where I go into all this in a lot of depth. Uh, Bao's uh, second question is, since the Latin Church is in communion with Byzantine Rite Catholic churches, does that mean that Rome has implicitly canonized the saints in the Eastern Church that were Orthodox, since these saints were after the Great Schism, like Gregory of Palamas? 
Uh, the answer is yes. This is something that comes up periodically on the show. Um, when the Catholic Church has reunited with other groups of Christians, it has been customary to recognize the saints that they have recognized in during the period of separation. And so individuals like Gregory of Palamas or Gregory of, of Neronic, um, even though they lived outside of the Catholic Church during their lifetimes, they were then recognized by saint as saints by their own community, and when their communities came back into full communion with uh, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church recognized their sanctity. And so there is a kind of implicit canonization, if you want to put it that way, that occurs like this. Wow, thanks very much. It's Internet Open Forum. I'm going to keep moving because we've got lots of questions from the Internet. Leslie asks this, Jimmy, how do you respond to non-Catholics? who ask about the number of Catholics who publicly criticize the Pope. They question our claim of unity. Well, um, we're going to hit the break, so I'll probably need to finish on the other side, but the I would have a number of things to say. The first one is this is the criticisms are of different natures that you hear. Um, some of them don't have anything to do with the faith. In fact, most of them don't. If you hear people criticizing the Pope, it's frequently over uh, not he taught this thing and I disagreed with it, um, although sometimes you will hear that, but it will frequently be, I think this is a bad idea. I think this is. I think he's. He should do his job differently, and I think that you know he should enact some other policy than the one he's announced, like more Latin mass or less Latin mass or whatever a person's preferred policy is. Yeah, they may they may be criticizing a matter of policy rather than a matter of doctrine, and having policy differences does not affect our unity in faith, because policy is not the same thing as faith. That's the first thing I'd say, but there's more, and we'll say it on the other side of the break. Internet Open Forum, Jimmy Aiken is our guest. We'll be right back to finish Leslie's question and lots more questions from the internet to come. Here's a question. Is it really possible to be friends with someone who died 2,000 years ago? Maybe the problem is that we've grown way too comfortable with the story of Jesus. Nice man, right? Taught us to love one another, said not to judge people. We celebrate his birthday every year. It's time to put away this small, safe version of Jesus, says Cy Kellett. Nobody that bland could have transformed the world. In a teacher of strange things, Cy presents Jesus Christ undiluted by sentiment with all his radical words and deeds uncensored. Do you know someone, your son or daughter perhaps, or maybe your mom or dad, who needs the friendship of Jesus Christ? Do you? Order your copy of A Teacher of Strange Things by visiting shop.catholic.com today or asking for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. Have you enrolled in the Catholic Answers School of Apologetics? Let me ask you a more important question. Do you believe as a Catholic that you have an obligation to share the Catholic faith? In fact, the church has answered this question, and the answer is that all confirmed Catholics are obliged to share the faith. It's actually in canon law. Catholic Answers is here to help you fulfill that obligation. Our School of Apologetics courses will equip you to help all the people you come in contact with understand what the church teaches and why. A great place to start is with all the Catholics in your life. Learn the art of apologetics from the best of the best 
and start sharing the gospel today. Visit schoolofapologetics.com. That's schoolofapologetics.com. Did you know you can access Catholic Answers Live right from your phone or other mobile device? Download the Catholic Answers Live app today. The Catholic Answers Live app, available now on iOS and Android. Welcome back. Catholic Answers Live, a little groovy music for your Thursday there. Jimmy Aiken, our guest. Uh, no one on the line because all the questions have come via the internet, but we are in the midst of answering uh, Leslie's question to Jimmy about uh, Protestants who criticize Catholics because we don't seem very unified. We, we're, we're always uh, fussing about the Pope, or there's lots of fussing about the Pope. So, uh, Jimmy, you were in the midst of your answer. Well, um, so what I'd pointed out so far was that a lot of criticism that you hear about popes is matters of policy rather than matters of doctrine. But you do sometimes hear criticism on matters of doctrine, and that is a problem. That is a scandal, and it's something that uh, needs to be handled differently. I mean, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, in a document that came out in 1990 known as uh, Donum Veritatis, which is Latin for the gift of truth, um, acknowledged that at times in non-infallible matters, there could be imperfections in church teachings that need to be pointed out and corrected. But that process needs to happen in a respectful, non-destructive way. And publicly criticizing the Pope is not the way to do that. So, um, so it is a problem when, when uh, Catholics uh, engage in that kind of criticism. On the other hand, I would point out that, well, you have the same phenomena in the Protestant Church. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, I've, I've heard it said that um, by, a, by a Protestant preacher I, I used to know, um, that you know, one, of, one of the favorite dishes at, uh, at, at Sunday lunch in many people's household is roast preacher. <laughs> um, you, you I know, haven't heard you say that before. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, people go home and they talk about all the things that the preacher said or did during the service that they didn't like. Right. And so you have this phenomenon in uh, in every religious group. People criticize their religious leaders because people are people and they're not perfect. Neither the leaders are perfect nor are the parishioners perfect. And so um, so you get this kind of criticism in every community, and it doesn't prove anything about one community being better than the other. Um, also, you get doctrinal disagreement. And in the Protestant community, doctrinal disagreement is even a bigger problem than it is in the Catholic community, because at least in the Catholic community, we have a belief that the teaching authority of the Church is guided by the Holy Spirit, and so we need to be guided by that teaching authority, as opposed to everyone gets to interpret Scripture his own way, and you tend to have more intense doctrinal controversies and more widespread doctrinal controversies in the Protestant community. That of itself doesn't prove anything about which community is has the better understanding, but the same problems are there that are being criticized in the Catholic community. The same problems are there in the Protestant community, and they are frequently even worse. Leslie, thanks. Uh, the next— um... I mean, one way of putting it would be, at least we have a pope. At least we all are, 
united in some way around a single leader. The Protestant community hasn't even been a, hasn't been able to achieve that. Uh, again, Leslie, thank you. The, the, uh, Jimmy, there's a, a, a stunning lack of, of a uh, vowel in the next name, so I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to say Rick Slow. Okay, yeah. I'm going to go with that. R, two, two words, R-X and then L-O. Uh, please shed light on what this is about. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we don't know a lot about this event. It's only mentioned here in Matthew in these couple of verses. And even in the Church Fathers, there's not a lot about this, especially, I mean, I would love to have some second century discussion of what's going on here, but unfortunately we don't have that. Um, So we're kind of left to make of of this what we can, given just the text of Matthew. And if you read a little bit before this in Matthew, like the previous verse or so, you find that this is a an event in a sequence of events that occurs at the death of Jesus on the cross. So the sequence is Jesus dies on the cross, and then the veil at the temple is torn into from top to bottom, and then there's an earthquake, and then the rocks are split, and then the tombs are opened, and various members of the righteous, the saints, who have died in God's friendship, come out of the tombs, and, um, and after Jesus is raised, they go and appear to people in the holy city, in Jerusalem itself. So um, one of the things that I think is an interesting way to look at this and I think this is probably what Matthew intended, is that we're meant to see this as kind of a chain reaction. So Jesus dies on the cross, and then you have this intervention from God, because it comes from above, where the, the veil of the, te- of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, and then once the tear reaches the bottom, we have the earthquake. So now the earth is shaking, and the earthquake leads to the breaking of rocks, and the breaking of rocks leads to the opening of tombs. And then this power coming from God raises, the, um, raises the, some of the dead, and after Jesus' own resurrection, they go into Jerusalem and appear to various people, thus being a living embodiment of God's power to raise the dead. And so in connection with Jesus's resurrection, we have these parallel resurrections that testify all of these different events, the tearing of the veil, the earthquake, the rocks, the tombs, the saints appearing, all of these um, are uh, events that testify to God's power, including his power to raise the dead and its connection to the death of his son. Uh, Thanks uh, very much for that question. I appreciate that. Uh, Let's go to John's question. Can you explain purgatory in adult terms? I don't know how we usually explain well, it, but <laughs> well, sometimes you know, purgatory is 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 framed in a kind of catechetical way that's appropriate for children. Yeah, but we don't go into the deeper, like what's really happening here. Mm-hmm. And in recent times, there has been um, discussion of purgatory in magisterial documents that I think. Um, can be of assistance in this regard. One of the things you find when you read 
so for example, um, children off understand the concept of punishment. You know, if yeah. your kid, your kid does something wrong, you punish your kid and they understand punishment. What they frequently don't understand is why, you know, why are you punishing them? Is it just because you're mad or are you trying to help them in some way? And they'll pick up on, okay, dad is mad, but they won't necessarily pick up on dad is trying to help me. Mm -hmm. And that's something that in order to perceive that, that's something that takes more maturity. And in the same way, sometimes purgatory is explained simply as the temporal punishments that are due to sin, at, even though it's already been forgiven. And that's a, a mode of explanation that can help a child understand something of purgatory, but it's incomplete because one of the things that um, that the author of Hebrews stresses is that God disciplines us for our own good in order to train us in holiness. And he even contrasts that with the way our fathers disciplined us. He says, our fathers disciplined us as it seemed good to them, but God does it for our benefit. So maybe sometimes our dads punished us just because we were, we were, he was mad, but God will only discipline us for our good. So there is a deeper good that we are receiving from the purification in purgatory. And in recent uh, magisterial statements uh, from the reign of John Paul II, um, he explains the so-called punishments of purgatory as purifications to heal our disordered, broken nature. So as a result of original sin, we have these disordered desires that cause us to be tempted and that lead us into sin. And according to John Paul II, that's what purgatory fixes. We shouldn't concede, and in the Catechism and Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, also echoed or kind of chimed in on this theme that we shouldn't conceive of the punishment of purgatory as punishment inflicted from without. Rather, it's something called for by the nature of sin itself in order to be corrected. And and what's at the root of sin is our disordered desires, and that's what purgatory fixes, according to recent magisterial statements. So if you'd like more on that, you could check out audiences that John Paul II gave on purgatory. There's one in particular from, I think it's 1999, it's the late 1990s, um, but Google John Paul II purgatory audience, and you should find it. And then also in Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Salvi, on Christian hope, he has a section discussing purgatory where he articulates it in these kind of healing terms where he gets at the purpose of the uh, experience of purgatory as opposed to just kind of the simple catechetical misbehave and you'll get punished. John, thank you for the question. We got to take a quick break. Jimmy Aiken's our guest. It's Internet Open Forum. And if you're just joining us, I'll let you know. Jimmy's got a big debate coming up very shortly after this program, a couple hours after at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Jimmy will be debating Bart Ehrman on whether or not the Gospels are historically reliable. Jimmy, of course, will be taking the position that they yeah, are— in, in... Spoiler, they are reliable. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's the spoiler alert. Didn't want to leave you uh, hanging. And, uh, and you can uh, you can participate. You can join anywhere in the world. Uh, you can watch the debate. Just visit YouTube.com 
and search for Catholic Answers. When you get to the Catholic Answers page, you'll find the debate there. YouTube.com, put in Catholic Answers, and you'll find the debate. That's at 7 p.m. Pacific time here in the United States, so you'll have to figure out what time that is wherever you are. We'll be right back with more Internet Open Forum with Jimmy Aiken right after this. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. We have a big problem. Our culture is dying, and souls are in danger of being lost. The answer is conversion to Jesus Christ in His Church. St. Paul Street Evangelization is a Catholic organization, and we have hundreds of teens spreading the good news throughout the country. But we need your help. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. One of the reasons we should go to Mass is because it is the food of the saints that we receive. And for the saints, they understood rightly that the time after Holy Communion, that those moments are the most precious moments of our lives. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, live from the EWTN Chapel, every morning, 8 Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. Welcome back, Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host, Jimmy Aiken, our guest. And I think I've done a very good job of not giving out the phone number. Usually, yeah. I, at some point in the two hours, I mess up and give out the phone number, but I don't think I have done it this time. It's been You've awfully tempting. You've a, a mental phone numberectomy. I, I did it, finally. I've been needing that uh, phone numberectomy when we do these internet open forums. And all... then tomorrow, you can have a phone number plasty. Yeah, I'm going to, right. I'm going to need it restored. A phone, is that what plasty means? Well, a grafting is oh, what gra- a plasty is. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to gra- graft the phone number back on. Uh, t- uh, tomorrow, by the way, we have the game show. We, uh, Carlo will be here, and we'll, he's, oh. our, he's our secret guest, and we're doing the game show. So I hope we'll see you then. Uh, more questions from the internet for you, Jimmy. You, uh, the, the internet is not tired. I hope you're not, because there's more nope, questions coming. I'm fine. John asks this, what is transubstantiation? Is there a good example of change in substance in anything besides Eucharist that would help people understand Eucharistic transubstantiation? Well, okay, so uh, trans is a Latin um, term that means across, and substance is a term that means something different in philosophy and theology than it does in ordinary speech. Today, in ordinary English, a substance means a kind of stuff. So like tapioca or plastic or wood, all of those would be kinds of stuff or substances. Mm-hmm. But in um, in uh, philosophy and theology, the term is often used in a different way. It's often used to refer to a thing, any given thing that exists on its own is a substance. And so psychelet would I'm be a substance. a substance in this philosophical sense. And a piece of bread would be a substance. And so if you have something transubstantiated, that means it goes from being one substance to being another substance, or it goes from being one thing to another thing. It's no longer the same thing. So in the case of Eucharistic transubstantiation, you have initially the substances of bread and wine, 
and they are transformed into Jesus Christ. And um, there, there is that's a miracle, obviously, and so it's apart from the ordinary operation of nature. But there are things in the ordinary operation of nature that show that transubstantiation, even in a natural way, is possible. Let's go back to the time that Psychelet was not yet conceived. Yeah. And then Psychelet is conceived in his mother's womb. Yeah. Well, so like all of us, Psychelet originally, his, his original one-celled zygote form was made from two germ cells, and those came from the bodies of his parents. Where did the matter for those germ cells come from? There, they, the parents didn't have, size parents didn't have that matter in them when they were babies. So at some point in their lives, they ingested matter, they ate food that then went into making those germ cells that then went into making psychelet. And so you had this matter that didn't used to be psychelet, but used to be food that then was changed in substance to become the substance psychelet. Yeah. And you continue to have this process occur in the womb of psychelet's mother, because as baby in embryo psi grew, uh, his mother continued to eat food. And so uh, her body then took pizza and chicken and vegetables and took the matter of those substances and fed it through the placenta into her baby psi so that he could continue to grow. And so you had these other substances like pizza and chicken and vegetables that were transubstantiated into psychelet. And so here, even on the natural level, we can see how one set of substances like food can be transformed into another substance like psychelet. And if nature knows how to do that, God knows even more ways to do it. That was a fun little trip down memory lane, too. I enjoyed... Uh, a lot of people don't talk about it, but I enjoyed being a zygote. I found it very relaxing. Mm -hmm. It was a very brief period. It didn't last long, but it was very uh, peaceful and relaxing being a zygote. There's there's a uh, there's a Laurie Anderson song. Uh, she's a performance artist, and there's a Laurie Anderson song that has some interesting lyrics where she's saying, I'm thinking back to when I was a child... Uh, and then I'm when I was very small, and then I'm thinking back to when I was an embryo, a tiny speck, just a dot. And then she says, I'm thinking back to when I was a Hershey bar in my father's back pocket. <laughs> Why, she really? She has a, a tremendous memory. <laughs> uh, um, actually, I'm going to ask you about this, then I'm going to give you another question, because I know you know the answer to this. Mm -hmm. uh, is... We don't really re remember uh, our prelingual period. Maybe some people do. I have no idea. Is that because our, typically the, not the brain is just not formed to to retain no, those memories? Or it, it's it's because the brain deliberately destroys them. Um, there Stupid are brain. I loved well, being a baby. I... It's 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 think of it as as cleaning your hard drive. Oh, yeah. um, because you have all this new experience you're integrating in, and you're having this explosive like. When you're like two years old, you're having this explosive brain growth. Your brain is making all these neural connections as you learn language, for example. And it needs to be pruned back 
And so there is a pruning stage that occurs to get rid of unnecessary neural connections to make uh. a platform for further brain development. And this happens in stages. And it actually, it's not completed until your mid-20s. Oh, all right. Uh, let's go to, I got, I got another question here from James. All the questions coming mm -hmm. from the internet, by the way, today. Uh, I think my brain just did a reset there real quick. <laughs> just, I think it just, uh, did you hear that? There was a slight reset there. Uh, James, uh, if or when we welcome the Eastern Orthodox churches back into the fold, what could that mean for the table of contents for our Bibles? What books could plausibly make the cut? So to speak, three Maccabees, but not four Maccabees? What do you think, Jimmy? Okay. Um, so we've talked about this some before, uh, and just like the Church recognizes canonized saints that other communions have uh, have have canonized during the period of absence, uh, when full communion is restored, it's possible that something like this might happen with the canon of Scripture, because as we mentioned earlier, there were there are different editions of the Septuagint. Some of them include a few additional books, and some of those books have been recognized by various other groups of Christians, including among the Eastern Orthodox. And I, if you read carefully, and you really do have to pay attention, but if you read carefully, the Council of Trent's uh, decree on the canonical scriptures, it says the following winds are sacred and canonical, but it does not say, and there are no others. And recently, the Pontifical Biblical Commission, in their document on the uh, inspiration and truth of scriptures, confirmed that the Church has recognized our proto- and deuterocanonicals as scripture without condemning everything else. And Pope Francis approved the publication of that document from the Pontifical Biblical Commission. So that agrees with what Trent said. Hypothetically, therefore, if we came into a group, into communion with a group of, say, Eastern Orthodox Christians who recognize First Esdras as Scripture, I doubt that we, if they're otherwise willing to reunite, I very much doubt that the Holy See would say, oh, but now you've got to declare First Esdras non-canonical. You've got to renounce that as Scripture if you want to be in communion with us. I very much doubt that would happen. Right. And because they would simply say, forget it at yeah. that point. They wouldn't come into communion. And since we're pursuing communion with them, I suspect what would happen at that time is that it would be, okay, you guys recognize your canon, we recognize our canon, that the fact that you had some, these additional books did not stop you, did not stop us from being in communion before the split, so they don't need to stop us from being in communion I am. now. There's, they, we can live with the ambiguity about this, just like we lived with the ambiguity before the split. And um, in the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit, and I'm not saying this ever, I'm not saying it will happen, I, it, 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 it could never happen, but over centuries, the Holy Spirit might lead the Western parts of the Catholic Church to recognize the same additional scriptures that this reunited Eastern Orthodox branch of Catholicism recognized. Should that happen, and I'm not saying it will, but should that happen, the books that would uh, that would most likely make the cut, which is James's question, would be first Esdras, 
also known as Third Ezra, Third Maccabees, and Psalm 151, books that probably would not make the cut, at least with most, if we reunited with most Orthodox Christians, would be Second Esdras, also known as Fourth Ezra, and also Fourth Maccabees, because even though those latter two books are in, were in some editions of the Septuagint, they have not achieved recognition as canonical scripture by most Eastern Orthodox. All right, thanks very much for that one. I want to get at least another question in before we go. I appreciate that one, James. This one comes from Krishna. I know of holy water and blessed salt to protect my family from evil. What else should parents know to protect their families? Well, um, the fundamental thing is uh, is prayer to God and living a Christian life and trusting in God for his protection. These... Um, sacramentals like holy water and blessed salt are just particular concrete ways of enacting our trust in God to protect us from evil, but it's the trust itself that's fundamental. And so praying for oneself and one's family, I mean, it's right there in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us, you know, not into temptation, or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're praying for protection from evil right there. And there are other other ways of doing it in addition to holy water and blessed salt. There's a blessing sometimes that priests will do where they come around and mark uh, doors in your house with chalk. There are other forms of home blessing where you can have a priest come in and do that. Uh, the Benedictines have a special prayer that they'll say over a medallion of St. Benedict for protection against demons. So there are lots of these little sacramentals, but the fundamental thing is trust in God to protect us because he's the source of all protection. Krishna, thank you for that question. I think that'll do it for the questions uh, today, Jimmy, because I, there's not enough time left to get to more questions. But uh, Jimmy Aiken... There uh, is time for people to get to the debate tonight, though. Yes. So if you're in the San Diego area, you can still get tickets. Uh, go to catholic.com slash debate. And if you're not able to do that, if you're elsewhere in the country, um, you can go to YouTube and type in Catholic Answers and watch the debate online. And that debate Jimmy's talking about, if you're just joining us, uh, Jimmy's debating uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Uh, Dr. Ehrman, a very well-known skeptic of the reliability of the Gospels. Jimmy, a very well-known proponent of the reliability of the Gospels. They will, devote, they will debate on that very point starting two hours from now. So uh, whether you can join us in person or join us online, uh, we hope you will join. It's going to be a fascinating debate. Uh, Jimmy, many blessings as you undertake that debate. Thank you, and also to you for the arduous task of having to introduce us and moderate us. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I've never done it before, never moderated a deba debate before. So I, I'm, I've been practicing in my basement. I hope I'll awesome. be good. Uh, I look forward to the Psychelet basement tapes. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, that's where I also work on my Kung Fu. Uh, tomorrow, don't forget, we got the game show. It's back. Carlo is our secret guest. We'll see you then, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Live.